week. And next week we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3 in the first 13 verses in a series that we've titled Surprising Welcome. And if you know me very well, first off, if you don't know me, I'm Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Um, But if you know me very well or even if you've heard me preach before, I don't usually tell stories from my life. Um, And I'm going to break that rule this morning because I cannot shake the correlation between this portion of my life and in the title of this series. Um, So when I was in high school, a freshman, um, maybe 15, maybe 16, I went to my first high school dance. Um, And I don't know if this, I don't know if I still exhume this reality, but for me, that meant that I borrowed my friend's vinyl pants and I put on a shiny leopard print shirt that was so tight I needed help getting it off and my choker collar and my spiky hair. And that was, that was my introduction to the high school scene. Um, and yeah, there are none, uh, and that is intentional. Um, but I'm standing there at a dance. I'm not much of a dance person, and I'm also not the type to just walk up and ask someone to dance. Why would I ask someone to do something I don't want to do anyways? Um, But I'm standing there enjoying the music, and this highly regarded, admired, attractive, blonde senior walks right up to me and asks me to dance. And, And I know her, but I don't know her very well. We attended the same church as kids, and to this day, this is an inexplicable situation. Because not only was I just some freshman that she didn't really know, but I was this freshman dressed like that, right? And I had that experience that we do in movies and television all the time where she came up to ask and I went, me? And there's a parallel experience that usually goes along with that, right? Which is from everybody else, which is him, right? That idea of surprising welcome is is tapping into that shock. It's tapping into that emotion, me? And it's amazing how often we see this, right, in the, in the New Testament, in Jesus' story. Jesus is walking through town, and by this point, he's got a, a massive reputation. Everybody's there who wants to see him. Everybody wants his attention. And Zacchaeus, a tax collector, knows he doesn't have front row status, right? Even though he's short and he won't be able to see over the shoulders of everyone else, he's like, I'm going to have to climb a tree if I want to get a peek. And Jesus stops under the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I want to have lunch with you. And he says, me? right? And everyone else goes, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Jesus wants to eat with him? We see the same thing when Jesus is passing through Samaria. And as he comes into Samaria, he's sitting at a well, he's tired, he sent the disciples to go get lunch, and while he's there, a woman comes to the well, a Samaritan woman, to get water, and he starts a conversation. And she says, why are you, a Jew, talking to a Samaritan like me? Or to summarize, she says, me? Did you just address me? And when the disciples get back and they see him having this conversation, they go, why is Jesus talking to this woman? They go, her? Right? Or think of Jesus' parable about the prodigal son. Right? The son takes his inheritance in advance, isolates and separates from his family, goes off, squanders the entire wealth, sells himself into slavery to get by, is wishing he ate as well as the pigs he's taken care of. And he decides to come home, and his pitch is, Dad, I know I'm disqualified as a child of yours, 
but you're a better employer than my current employer. Will you just be my boss, right? That's his attitude. And the father embraces him and, and says, my son is alive, and he throws him a party. And we all know what the prodigal's thinking. He's thinking, me? And what is his older brother thinking? Him? Right? This is what I mean by surprising welcome. There's something about the gospel message which is not just good news, it's shocking. It's surprising news. It's unexpected good news. It's a windfall. Okay? And this is what Paul is kind of circling around as we open our text this morning. And so, if you would join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, I want to look with you at chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. One last word before we start reading here. This is a, a, a portion of scripture that is stuck or hung very importantly between what just happened and what we won't get to for a couple of weeks. It's an aside. Uh, and so it begins with, for this reason, and for that reason, we have to go back to chapter two, what we were reading, and then he actually doesn't tell us where he's going. For this reason, dot, 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 and then he goes, and he makes an aside, okay? What he's actually going to do in verse 14 is say, for this reason, I pray, okay? But we're not going to get to the prayer for a few weeks. He has some other things he wants to talk about, um, but, but mostly that connective tissue we'll, we'll touch on today. I just wanted to point it out um, so that we don't get lost. Look at verse 1 with me. For this reason, I, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and here's the dot, 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 assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, we're just going to focus on that part today, but for context, I want to keep reading. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray and we'll step in deeper. God, you told the people of Israel through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy that we as human beings cannot live by bread alone, but that we need for our very life every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we come hungry this morning 
We come with spiritual needs that we desire to be met. And we come knowing that you have provided nourishment for us in your word this morning. And so we invite you, speak to us, stir in our hearts, lead us, guide us, convict us, encourage us, exhort us. Do all that you desire to do, Lord. Like Samuel, this morning we say, speak, for your servants are listening. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as we look at this idea of surprising welcome, we're going to do it in two weeks, and we're going to do it in two parts. This morning, we're going to focus on the message of welcome. And next week, we'll focus on the ministry of welcome. So in other words, first we're going to focus on on the message, and then we're going to focus on the messenger. First, we're going to focus on the content of this proclamation that Paul is talking about, and then we're going to talk about the ministry of proclamation both as we see it in Paul and as we are called to. And as we look at this passage, it's striking all of the ways that Paul talks about this message, okay? And so what I want to do this morning is give you a multifaceted or a multidimensional view of this message of welcome. Because that's what Paul does here. And so notice again in verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard, and this is the phrase we want to start with, of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Okay. So what is the first way that we can describe this message? Paul says that he was given a grace, and not for himself, but for you. Okay, a stewardship of God's grace. And so the word here for stewardship, uh, it's actually related to the language that we saw last week when it says that we've become a household. Okay, this word is householding. Okay, it's like when you sit down and you do the grocery budget. That's, that's the word that's used here. And so maybe a helpful word for us this morning is a manager. And so the idea that it suggests here is that Paul has been given a gift, that's, that's what the word charis, grace, means, a, a free and presented for the sake of someone else, a gift, and he's been given it for you, okay? And so the first way that we should think about the gospel is an unexpected gift. And, and that's kind of striking right here in this passage. He says, assuming that you've heard that I have a special delivery for you, Assuming that you heard that, you know, if you'll allow me to be fictitious, that God sat down and wrapped up a package and put it in the mail and Postman Paul is here to give it to you. Okay. It's a gift. He describes here what God has done in Jesus Christ as a gift. The stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. But then he goes on and he looks at it through a different lens. Look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by the revelation as I've written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, and so he uses the language here of mystery. And that's not really the most helpful English word to use. The reason why we use it is because the Greek word is mysterion, 
okay? So we're not reaching very far to use the word mystery. It's almost a, a, a transliteration of the Greek word. But when we think of mystery, we think of unsolved mysteries. We think of, you know, your favorite detective and trying to solve a crime. We think of a riddle or a puzzle or an enigma. But that's not what this word meant in Paul's time. What it meant was closer to the word a secret. In fact, maybe if you've ever uh, studied the religious context that Christianity was birthed into, maybe you've heard of the mystery religions that were very popular in Greek culture at this time. And the idea of a mystery religion was that we have secret knowledge. We have secret rites and secret ways, and we can initiate you into the secrets, into the mysteries, okay? So think like Freemasons, okay? Something like that. What he says here, when he uses the word mystery, what he's trying to say is there was a secret, something that could only be known if you were told, something that couldn't be observed or found out or discovered. And what he says here is that what God has done in Jesus Christ was hidden, but has now been revealed. In other words, the cat is out of the bag, okay? This is not a secret that is to be hidden or to protect it. It's not something that is any, uh, uh, any more unknown, but is now being proclaimed broadly, loudly, bigly, okay? The idea here, I, I like the language that Leslie Newbegin uses. He says that what Paul is addressing here is an open secret. It's an open secret, okay? It's something that was hidden but has now been revealed. And what this is here when he unpacks the mystery is we see another, um, another set of lenses for this message of welcome. So, for example, notice what he says um, in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay. Now, what he's saying very specifically is the surprising part, the secret part, is this salvation available in Jesus is also for non-Jewish people. That's the part is, that's hidden. If you go back and you read the Old Testament, that God has a plan to save is very clear. In fact, that God has a plan to save the world is very clear. That God has a plan to make one both non-Jewish people and Jewish people. Or that God has a plan to use the Jewish Messiah to save Gentiles just as they are. That's the one where you go, wait, what? That's the part that's not clear. Now, it's clear if you know the New Testament and you go back and read the Old. There's lots of hints and shadows. There's lots of foreshadowing. There's, there's lots of, um, you know in the film, The Prestige, how the conclusion of the film is actually played out in the intro, and you watch this magic trick with two birds, and it's really the whole point of the movie, but you don't know it's the whole point of the movie? It's like that. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is there's a plot twist in God's plan, a surprise. There's a ta-da moment, okay? And the secret here that it's described, I want you to see here, in doing so, we can explore what this new 
this good news is. And the first thing I want you to notice here is he uses the language of inheritance. He says that Gentiles are fellow heirs. Go back to that idea of a windfall, right? When, when I think of a windfall, sometimes I think of a publisher's clearinghouse check, right? Knock on the door. What? I'm a millionaire suddenly? But the other way we think about this, right, is discovering that you had an unknown uncle who left you a bundle, right? That's part of what Paul is pointing to here. He says we've become heirs, heirs of all the promises that were made to Israel, our distant cousins, okay? In other words, what makes the good news good is that where we had a future of despair, we now have a destiny. Where we were wondering how we were going to get by, now everything is going to be all right. right? That's, that's the language here that's used of inheritance. And then notice members of the same body. This is identity. This is... Um, so I've been reading a bunch of George MacDonald, and he really only, he really only has one story. It's, it's about orphans who discover that they're actually wealthy landowners. And I don't know why he's so obsessed with this storyline. But it's that idea of discovering that you have a name, that you have a coat of arms, that you have a, a legacy and a history, and you thought you were just a foundling. But you're more than that, right? The idea here of being members of the same body and even of being fellow heirs. The New Testament uses the language of adoption. Gaining a new family, okay? And so we hit this pretty hard in the last sermon series at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 because everything he's talking about here is review. In fact, we know that because what did he just say? He said, assuming that you've heard the ministry that was given to me, and then he says, as I've written briefly. And as you read, you've perceived what the mystery is, okay? So really, all he's talking about in chapter 3 is not stuff you don't know, It's stuff we just talked about. And so even this language of fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers, it's it's mostly just drawn out of chapter 2. He's reiterating, okay? But it emphasizes this idea of identity. And then look at the last one, partakers of the promise. Okay, and so another way to think of this good news is that there were promises that God made And now they're promises to you. There are things God said, I will do. And now in Jesus Christ, he says, I'm going to do them for you. In fact, Paul says in another place that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you in the Psalms, he says that to you this morning in Jesus Christ. Because when he said that originally, he said it to Israel. I will never leave you, Israelite. I will never leave you, Jewish child. I will never leave you, descendants of Abraham. But now he says that to you, you've become partakers of the promise. So it's a gift to be received. It's an identity to be realized. It's a promise to be accepted. Okay? All of this language he uses, and then although we'll focus more on verses 7 through 13 next week, I want you to notice that he keeps giving us other lenses to look at. And so notice what he says in verse 8. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach what? To the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
And so I want you to notice two things about the gift here. Um, First, again, we encounter this image of wealth, of unsearchable riches, of of windfall. And Paul experienced this as a Jew. Paul would have seen himself as spiritually wealthy. He's one of God's people. He has the promises made to Israel. His God is the God who created the world and he knows him intimately. He has the temple. As he says in Philippians, he was a Jew of Jews uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. And not only that, he's a Pharisee. He's the cream of the crop, knowing God closely and personally. And even says, and, and when it comes to my practice, I was blameless. He's like, I didn't know anything that would keep or hinder me from God. Then he meets Jesus, and he says, take all of that stuff. Take all of the wealth of my status as I was and compare it to knowing Jesus Christ, and he says, I count it as trash. In fact, he says, I count it all as trash in comparison to the wealth of knowing Jesus Christ. And I want want you to notice that that implies another thing. It is a wealth image. And that's one that we've seen throughout Ephesians, right? Where did Paul start in chapter 1? He wanted us to know every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that's available to you in Christ Jesus. A wealth of resources, of a wealth of riches, of blessings available in Jesus Christ. But also, we can't really read the unsearchable riches of Christ and not realize that Jesus himself is the riches. Paul is not just saying here, we want to give you a card, you know, a debit card to Jesus's account. He's not just saying, we want to extend you a, a line of credit in Jesus's name. The unsearchable riches are of Christ in the fact that knowing Christ is the wealth. It's the fact that Jesus himself, in all of his beauty and goodness, in other words, here Paul is hitting very hard that God hasn't just given us a thing, but given us himself in Jesus Christ. He's offered us a relationship with the living God that the Bible identifies as the God of love. We see this again a little bit later in the passage. Notice what he says in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. Okay. I can't read that word access without thinking of a backstage pass. Right? It's, it's a concept of privilege. It's the ability to go in a place that you didn't yesterday have the security clearance for. Okay. That's what the word access means. And in a sense, so does the word boldness. The idea of boldness is how you walk into a room as if it's okay for you to be there, right? Have you had those experiences where because of whatever reason you need to go in a place you know you don't belong and you're like, I'm just going to keep my head down and I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to try and posture and say, look, I know I'm not supposed to be here, right? And you're trying to present this kind of preemptively penitent posture Uh, you know, it's like walking into the back of a grocery store and it's like, I just couldn't find any employees and I've really got to get this broccoli home, you know, whatever it is. (laughs) The idea of boldness is different, right? You walk in like you own the place, like you're comfortable there, like your dad's the owner of the grocery store, right? That's the idea that Paul is trying to convey here in boldness and surprise, surprise, the access is to the throne room of the 
God of the universe. The boldness is to walk into the presence of God. Now, because of Christianity's deep impact on our culture, we can sometimes miss the shock value of that. Okay? Because if Jesus is my homeboy, you know, it's not a big deal. And, and even the way we think of God uh, as, as a friend who's inherently on our side or a benevolent grandpa who never gets angry or all of these cultural visions of God or, you know, the old man in the sky who grants our wishes, it doesn't really matter. There's not really this sense of holiness and the sense of danger that we see in the Old Testament, right? How many times does somebody encounter God and go, am I still alive? Right, that is the normal response to an encounter with God in the Old Testament. Samson's parents, they just encounter an angel and they're like, whoa, you know, and they're, they're like making their distance. Moses is just walking along. He sees a bush that's on fire and God goes, hey, you better take your shoes off because you just crossed the threshold, right? And later Moses explains to all of Israel, hey, God's going to perch on this mountain in this big pillar of fire and cloud of smoke. We don't have the wood for a fence, but don't cross that line. David is moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It's being carried on a cart by a couple of oxen. And the priest who's walking alongside sees the cart wobble in a pothole and reaches out to save it, instantly dead. Isaiah has a vision where he finds himself in the temple of the heavens and he sees the throne of God and the train of his robe, it says, fills the temple with glory. And he sees the angels who all day and all night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he falls on his face. And he says, woe is me. Right? Psalms, Proverbs, both tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? We can miss this reality. But take that reality and then t take what Paul says here that we have boldness and access. Think of the high priest, the one person who walks into the Holy of Holies, and as Hebrews reminds us, even then, only with the blood of a slaughtered calf, and only one day a year. And recognize that in Jesus Christ, we have daily, full clearance access into that throne room. And that we can boldly, as Paul says in another place, enter into the throne room of grace. That even if God is the judge of the universe, and he is, he is also our father. So we come into his chambers and we spin in his chair. Right? Do you see the threshold difference there that Paul is talking about? We have been welcomed into the presence of the living and holy God. Me? This is the reality that Paul is trying to convey and how much more for most of us who have zero Jewish blood to speak of that were, as he said in the last chapter, strangers to the covenant. We didn't know that this was God's intention. We didn't know that this was God's ambition. We didn't know that there was good news for us, even if there was good news for others. In fact, that gives us uh, another way to think about this. Another, what is this message of welcome? It's a plan. Look at what he says in verse uh, 9. And to bring delight for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. And then notice in verse 11, um, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is about an unknown benefactor. This is about not realizing that there's a strategy in place. This is, not, this is about not realizing that you have a destiny and that God's been working in the shadows towards good things for you. This is why if you encountered the Four Spiritual Laws pamphlet that used to be a, a normal Christian evangelistic track, what is the first thing that it says? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Why does that have to be said? Because we didn't know. And that's what Paul is saying is bound up in the mystery here. Surprise! I've been working towards this. I've put in all the effort. I've sent my son to live the perfect life you couldn't live. I sent my son to die the death that you deserve and pay the penalty from your sins. I raised my son from the grave so that you also could defeat death and live in victory and conquer the grave. I sent my son to triumph over the powers and principalities so that you would no longer be a slave to the devil in his ways. Everything we talk about that God has done for you, he did before you knew it. And that's why, that's why if we go back to verse 6, look at the language that he uses here. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, that's us, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the what? Through the gospel. Okay. Now, gospel I'm going to use in a second as kind of a summary, conclusive, wraparound term. But first, let's talk about its original meaning. Okay. Gospel means good news. But not just like, hey, good news, they had that Ben and Jerry's you like at the grocery store. Okay. It's not just generic good news. It's a technical term from the political realm. Good news is if you are experiencing an attack by some barbarous people and the emperor sends an army and defeats them and sets you free, that is a gospel. That is a good news. In other words, one of the ways that Paul explains this message of welcome is as a newsworthy event. Something has happened Okay. And it is something that has happened that is life-changing and delivering as someone who is more powerful than you has intervened on your behalf and therefore changed your life. That's what gospel means. And it's a provocative word in the New Testament because usually it's only gospels about Caesar. And so even when Paul says Jesus is Lord, there's a tension there. The word there he uses for Lord is, is Caesar is Lord. That's the proclamation. In fact, our Christian brothers and sisters in the first century died because of that distinction. Because they would not say Caesar is Lord and take a pinch of incense and burn it. Because only Jesus is Lord. Okay. But this good news, this message of welcome is a surprising proclamation about an event. Something that has happened. It is front page news. It is the war is over, right? But we also use the language here of gospel and we recognize the implication of that word, which is just that broader thing that it's not just news. It's not just an event. It's good news 
for you, right? When we use the word gospel today, what we're saying is we want to tell you God's good news for you. And how many times does Paul hit on that through this? The purpose in Christ for you, the grace that was given for you, that you as Gentiles have all of these inheritance, all of these promises, all of these good news, right, that you now have access, backstage clearance to the very presence of God, right? All of these things are bound up in this one phrase, gospel. But as shorthand for today, I just want to reduce it again to the title of the series, what we proclaim, what we believe, the content of Christianity What makes us a religion of proclamation that has a message to convey is a message. And the message is a surprising welcome. And if you reflect on your own story, you may even be able to lay your finger on that in a very direct way. I know that I can. Because it was only a few years after that dance with this, you know, woman that unexpectedly wanted to dance with me in front of everybody that I was sitting in a church like ours and I was hearing this same New Testament taught and I started to realize, wait a minute, God is interested in me? Wait a minute, God is capable of using me? And at the time, I didn't know the heritage or history of Calvary Chapel, the family of churches that we're a part of, but this is a great description for what happened during the Jesus movement in the 70s where all of the cultural rejects the barefoot hippies suddenly went, us? And as is always the case, plenty of Christians went, them? Right? There is this surprise that is bi-directional, right? And, and I've experienced it not just in the first day that I became a Christian, but I experience it all the time. The, the fact that I became a pastor was not an obvious and expected path for me. To be honest, as a young and brand new Christian, just based on my teenage past, I was pretty sure I was disqualified for most things. Like, yeah, you can be a Christian, but you're gonna sit in the back of the room and just be happy that you're here. And I was happy with that, I was fine with that. And then suddenly there were doors opening and it was me? Right, can you resonate with this? The glory of the good news is that it is inexhaustibly surprising. That there's always more shocking reality to the depths of God's love for you. And sometimes we experience it in in a a renewed sense of forgiveness. Because we're still human. And we still go astray. And we still think our ways are better. Or we stubbornly hold on to things. Or sometimes we throw up our hands in frustration. You know, throw a middle finger up to the heavens and we we storm out. And like the prodigal son, we come back home, tail between our legs. We repeat the language of Peter. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we get the full and utter embrace of God's forgiveness. And we go, really? This language of welcome is so helpful and so rare. Even though it is language of the New Testament, Paul doesn't use that word here, but he does in Romans. And in Romans, he's talking about how we treat one another. And he says, look, I know you're going to bicker over how to observe religious days. 
He says, I know because there's Jews and Gentiles, there's going to be tensions about what you eat for dinner. He says, I know there's going to be a difference in people's conscience, and that's going to be hard. And he walks through all these things, he gives all of his theology and exhortation, and then he summarizes in this way. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And I want to give you an exhortation, whether you're a Christian or not this morning. If your relationship with God is expected and obviously deserved, if you're the guy at the party who walks in assuming that you're going to be asked to the dance, if, if you're the person who, who just walks into God's presence and has no sense of the fear or the danger or the shame or the hesitancy, if you're like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who are like, oh yeah, God and us are cool, we are his people, right? Then you haven't gotten it. You haven't realized who you really are, who God really is, and how that's bridged in Jesus Christ. And in the same way, when you feel that provocative them in your heart, when you find that resistance to accepting and welcoming that type of person, or, well, they're here and they're praising God now, but I know who they really were. Which, side note, that was my nightmare for years after I started this church, was that some kid from my high school would show up and interrupt my sermon and spill all my secrets. Okay. But that's not who I am anymore. And those things have been forgiven. But all the time I talk to old classmates and they go, you? <laughs> One guy actually said this. He said, but weren't you a pothead in high school? And I said, no, I wasn't. But that's what most people thought, <laughs> right? That was how he responded to finding out I was a pastor. Druggies are disqualified, right? You're not a God person. The welcome is surprising, and the more that we can see it, the more life-transforming it is. You know, one of the things that struck me is, as Paul talks about all these different angles or languages to talk about the good news, and even as we've covered Ephesians so far, his reference to sin and repentance has actually been pretty rare. Like, there's, there's just a couple of references on we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and he hits it really hard there, and in chapter 1, he mentions that we've been forgiven. But isn't it amazing that nowhere in this passage does he make an aside and say, just to be clear, you've got to repent. Now, he's going to. As soon as we hit chapter 4, he's going to talk about the implications of these reality things. But we have to be sensitive to, we have to recognize the fact that all of our repentance is an implication of the good news, just as much as it is a requirement of the good news. That the reason we should flee from our sins is because God is just that good. And the reason we should turn away from the way we used to be is because God has offered us a new life and life with him. And the reason we no longer trust in our idols and forsake them is because we suddenly see them for what they are in contrast to the God that we've come to know. In Romans, Paul is speaking to religious folks, Jewish people, and he's talking to them particularly about the disconnect 
between being so judgmental on other people and so soft on their own sins. And he says, do you critique these things and continue to do these things? And he says, do you not know that God's kindness leads us to repentance? And he's saying two things there, and we need to keep them both in mind this morning. One is, before you repent, God is tremendously kind to you. God's posture towards you as a human being this morning, whether you've ever given him any interest at all, is an orientation of kindness. But also, that God's kindness is there to lead you to repentance. It can't just be received and go, well, clearly, God doesn't care about A, B, C, and D, because look at how nice he is to me. He is wooing you to repentance. He is softening your, you know, kung fu grip on the on the things that you want to hold on to. And Paul says that not just to remind us that God is good, but to remind us that the implications of the gospel are all-encompassing. That it's a dangerous thing to presume on God's kindness. To take all of this goodness and to not respond to it is to deny its goodness entirely. And so although Paul doesn't talk about repentance here, it is built into the system. And let me just leave you with this, because this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says two things about repentance. First, he says, now, repentance is no fun at all. I've always appreciated that. I think it's a good place to start. Jesus always encouraged people to count the cost and was always frank about the difficulties, dangers, hardships that would be a part of the Christian life. He says, but the second thing is, repentance isn't required to return to God. It's just a definition of what it means to return. It is the way that we live a life with God, not the prerequisite to that life. And so, what we see here, and what Paul is shocked that he's been given the ministry to proclaim, the message, the central focus of Christianity, the gospel, is an invitation, an unexpected invitation from an overwhelmingly good God who has already thought about you, already set right what was wrong, already taken action on your behalf, already stored up riches for you, already loves you and wants to love you more deeply and fully and enjoy a relationship with you. Let's pray.